Those, I believe, are all the announcements. And so now as we go into our sermon series, I am really excited about this one. I know that's the word that I just use all the time. It's usually true that I, I am excited about what we do as a church, and I'm excited about how I get to, to serve with you. And our focus this year has been on loving our neighbors. And so we spent a few weeks in January talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is Jesus's longest Uh, conversation about what it means to love your neighbor, and we reflected on the fact that your neighbor is nothing more complicated than the person who is near you. It literally means the person who lives next to you, the person who stands next to you, works next to you, shops next to you, whatever. The people near you are your neighbors, and you are called to love those people. And then we looked at the life of Abraham for a few months as the first person that God called to love his neighbors— And we looked at the successes and the failures and the lessons in Abraham's journey. And then over the last five weeks, we looked at the Gospel of John. And our main focus there was on trying to understand how this radical focus on others can be sustainable in a life that it feels like we don't, where it feels like we don't have enough resources for ourselves. We talked about how it, it actually involves a different kind of life, this, what God, Jesus calls eternal life, which is a life that is sustained uh, on giving and sharing and receiving life from God and sharing it with others rather than trying to accumulate and hold on to resources and survive by what we can own and control. So for the last five weeks, we took this really narrow focus on the person, the individual, and what loving others means for me as an individual. Today, we're going to start a series that's going to take us to the other end of the spectrum, where we're going to talk about how loving our neighbors is actually also the way that we transform not just ourselves, but the world. And it has been the greatest cause for transformation in the world in the past 2,000 years. And the reason we're talking about this is partly because, mainly because it fits in with the, the trajectory that we're on as we talk about loving our neighbors. As I was trying to decide what to do next, I realized that it needed to be something sustainable that I could do while we're also preparing for convention and I'm doing all the other things that, trying to keep all the plates spinning, right? And so I want to pick something that I'm already very familiar with that isn't going to uh, require a lot of new research. And this was the obvious place for me to go because what we're going to talk about today, not only is it actually something I'm talking about at convention, but it's also at the very core of why I am a pastor. It's at the very core of, of what drives me as a person and what makes me excited to be part of the church. So I'm going to tell you a little bit of my backstory if you, if you are not familiar with this part. When I went to college, I studied politics. My bachelor's degree was in government. I graduated at the top of my class. I was very well qualified to go on into a political career, and I ultimately decided not to. And the reason I decided not to had to do with an experience that I had. A couple of the things that I did as a, student, as a college student was my uh, sophomore, wow, my junior year, I was an intern with the Washington State Legislature. And then my senior year, I was a lobbyist for the student union at Eastern Washington University. And my junior year, it was great. It was 2007, and it was, it was oh, the heady days of 2007, right? When life was so much simpler. Um, but the economy was doing pretty well, and it was, it was a very positive experience. Like, I thought, yeah, I can do this. And then I came back as a lobbyist in 2008, and my one job was to keep tuition down because state colleges are supported by tax dollars. And if any of you remember what happened fall of 2007, going into 2008, you may remember there was a little bit of a squeeze economically. Um, The greatest state budget deficit we had ever faced by a factor of like five. 
and the feel of the state capitol was completely different. It was a completely different place. The year before, it had all been positive and upbeat, and, and the, 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 um, the party rivalries had been kind of um, you know, teasing, um, and, and every, everybody was getting along, everybody was on the same team, and then there wasn't enough money to go around, and everything was different. Everybody was fighting, everybody was angry, everybody was desperate. Um, the amount of backbiting and betrayal that I saw, it was just, it was unpleasant across the board. And I came home after the session, and I went home to my church, and it was like a 50-person church plant. And I looked around at this community, and I liked it. There are some churches that are triage units, where people who've been hurt by other churches or just by the world, they come into that church, and they get healed. And that's just like the identity of that church. And that's kind of what we were. And I looked around that church, and I realized I saw more hope for transforming the world in that little 50-person church plant than I did in all the departments and agencies and everything that I had been involved in in Olympia. And it had nothing to do with which party was in charge or which candidates had been elected. It was just looking at the powers and the motivations and, and everything involved in what the, the state government had. And then looking at the power and motivation and everything that the church had, I found so much more hope in the church. And that's when I decided to change my path and go to seminary. And that's ultimately the path that led me to becoming a pastor. I never actually really got out of my desire to change the world. I just decided to go where the real power and the real hope was. So the reason I tell you that story is because that's at the core of what I want to talk to you about today. Because in the Western world, we have this idea that the world, if you want to change the world, then you turn to statecraft. Statecraft is the term for using the power of the state in order to shape the world, in order to, to fix problems. So if you want to change the world, if you want to make the world a better place, you need to control who's in the White House. You need to control who's in the Supreme Court. You need to control who's in the state legislature, the governor's house, Congress. You need to control the laws that they're passing. We need to be in control of power so that we can shape the world the way it needs to be. And that was the assumption that I had going into college. And what I realized coming out of college was that in Scripture, it's not statecraft that changes the world. It's kingdomcraft. It's the power of the kingdom of God that really changes things. And one of the things we struggle with when we try and ask, when we go to the Bible looking for instructions on how to change the world and we bring to it our normal assumptions about how the world gets changed, is the Bible doesn't talk in those terms, and so we have to force it to say the things we want. And that's why there's a million different perspectives on what it means to be uh, a faithful American Christian. Because we're constantly forcing it into our, our own ways of thinking, and we're not learning from the Bible. So what I want to do in this series is I want us to look at what the Bible tells us about how God equips us to actually change the world. And what we're going to find is it has a lot more to do with loving your neighbor than with controlling other people with power. Today, we're, going to, we're actually also going to be basically following the overall story of the Bible in about five weeks. And today we're going to start at the beginning, which is a good place to start, and we're going to be talking about anxiety and faith. We're going to be looking at where this mentality of trying to, this power mentality came from. And we're going to be asking, what is the problem that our societies, that human societies need to solve? And how do we go about trying to solve them? So we're going to start with the first 
political society in the Bible. Anybody know who founded the first political society in the Bible? I know you know, Casey. My wife. We've talked about this. Although I've also preached on this within the last couple of years. So, anybody remember? Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. First city is built in Genesis chapter 4 by a gentleman named Cain. Now, why did Cain build the first city? Well, it turns out, if we rewind a little bit, because we're actually at the end of his story, so let's rewind a little bit, he's afraid. He says, he says to God, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So he builds the city because he's afraid of getting killed, because he's been sent out to wander. And, being wan- and wandering makes you very vulnerable, and apparently people have a reason to kill him. So he's afraid of wandering, he's afraid of being vulnerable, so he builds a city. Now why is he, why is he wandering, and why is he afraid? Well, if we rewind a little bit more, it turns out that Cain has a brother. These are the first brothers, by the way. And Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Cain is the first murderer. So Cain builds a city because he's exposed and vulnerable and afraid of getting killed. And he's exposed and vulnerable and afraid of getting killed because he murdered his brother. And God told him, well, now you've got to run for it. Like, you can't murder people and then just hang out. That's not how it works. Um, you're, you're going to be on the run. Okay? Now, why did, Abel, or why did Cain kill his brother? Let's rewind a little bit more. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. So Cain murdered Abel because God accepted Abel's offering and not his own. Now here's the question. Why did he kill Abel over that? Like, who rejected his offering? God, right? Who should, I mean, if he should be mad at anybody, who would it be? Like, what did Abel actually do to Cain? Nothing, right? So that tells us something about Cain's mentality. He is not actually concerned about his relationship with God, right? That's not the issue because murdering Abel does not fix his relationship with God. Right? There's no way that he thinks killing his brother is going to make him good with God. He kills Abel because he's concerned about competing with his brother. Right? It doesn't matter whether he's on good terms with God so much as whether he's on better terms with God than the competition. So there's two ways that he could fix this situation. Right? He could either, he could either get on better terms with God than with Abel, which is going to require a lot of work and a lot of trial and error, or you can just kill the competition. So this whole thing grows out of Cain's attitude of scarcity. The word I'm going to use, scarcity, which means that in his mind, there is not enough to go around. At some point, there won't be enough to go around. And when push comes to shove, he needs to be ahead, right? He needs to be winning. Because there is no actual threat that Abel poses to Cain except the fact that Abel is, is winning in some kind of comparison. 
And Cain wants to make sure that whenever push comes to shove, because inevitably, apparently it will, that he is the one in front, that he's ranked number one. Because there isn't enough for two people, right? Now, this is also the same mentality that goes into the building of the second city. Anybody know what the second city was? Babylon. Now, you know it as Babel, but actually in the Bible, it's the exact same word. It's just Babylon. And after the flood, there's, the whole world is in one language and a common speech. And as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So they are afraid that if they scatter, they're not going to make it. They're vulnerable, and they're afraid that there isn't enough to go around, and so we need to concentrate as much power as we can together. We need to build a tower. We need to build walls. We need to be secure so that we can defend ourselves from the scarcity of the world. This is the mentality behind both cities, and it is the mentality behind the, the communities that we build. We think that the problem is scarcity, that there isn't enough to go around. Now, if the problem is scarcity, then what is the solution? The solution, if the problem is scarcity, is to get control of the resources, to get control of how things are distributed, to protect yourself from people who may want to take from you. The only solution to scarcity is force. This is why they build cities. This is why they build walls, because it protects them from people who may want to take from them. And this is actually the logic that is built into modern nation states as well. It's in our founding documents. For instance, in the Declaration of Independence, it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. We have rights. Those rights are constantly being threatened. We make governments to protect ourselves from the threats to our rights. Same thing it says in our Constitution. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. The assumption is that all of these things are under threat. These things will not exist unless we create them or protect them with force because there isn't enough to go around. Right? And so we need to protect ourselves. This seems as obvious as the nose on your face, right? There isn't enough to go around. We need to protect ourselves. We need to turn to force. And so when we as Christians go to the Bible, looking for the Bible to tell us how we're supposed to participate in our societies and our communities and how we're supposed to create change, we go with this mentality and we try and get the Bible to give us the right answers about how we're going to apply the biblical ethic and biblical principles to this modern challenge of controlling the world so that we can get the scarce resources into the right place. That's our mentality, right? And then what ends up happening is we get this broad range of answers of how do you turn how do you take biblical ethics and work them out through our power structures? Here's the problem with that. The Bible does not actually share those assumptions. The Bible does, is not built on the same logic. And so if we don't approach the Bible within its own logic, we're not going to get biblical answers about how we are supposed to shape the world around us. First and foremost for us to recognize is that according to the Bible, scarcity is not the problem. God's grace provides everything we need. 
So, at the very beginning, this is the first thing that God says to humanity. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that he had, what he had made and it was all very good. So, he tells them two things. Number one, I want you to rule the earth. And number two, I've provided everything you need for that to happen. This is actually what it means when he says it was very good. Very good doesn't mean it was perfect. If it was perfect, there would be no room for humanity to do anything, to subdue anything. Right? But it's, we've talked about this before, that it's actually like God inviting them to his pile of Legos and saying, let's play together, let's build things. Like there is work to do, there is things to be built. But what he's saying when he says it's good is that it has everything it needs. Right? We have everything we need in order to sustain humanity flourishing and, and subduing the earth and creating the world that God, the way that God wants it. It's a working system. It doesn't need anything else. It is sufficient. It is good. Right? The problem is, and, and, and God maintains that attitude all throughout all of these stories. It's this counter melody running through the stories. Whereas every person doubts God's grace... God continually tells them, no, I'm still taking care of you. I'm still taking care of you. Just trust that I'm taking care of you. So, for instance, Cain is afraid that he is losing his competition with, he's losing his competition with his brother. What does God say? This is before he kills Abel, okay? Um, This is what God says. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, and you must rule over it. Notice what he's saying. He's basically saying to Cain, why are you upset about what's going on with Abel? This isn't a competition. You don't have to beat Abel. You don't have to be first in anything. You just have to do what's right. Just do the right thing and don't worry about Abel. But if you get into this competitive mindset, thinking that you need to be first, sin is ready, and it is going to grab you. If you are not careful, sin is going to grab you. So the whole thing is just don't give in to that mentality. Unfortunately, Cain doesn't trust what God's telling him, and so he murders his brother. But even then, God continues to respond with grace. Because when God says, all right, you're going to have to go on the run now. You can't just stay in your society after you've murdered people and expect things to go on. Cain is afraid, and he says, well, somebody's going to kill me. God says, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So notice the mark of Cain, we often think that the mark of Cain is a curse, and it's actually been used that way to great destructive ends. As um, uh, It's actually been told, it's been said that dark skin is the curse of Cain. The mark, whatever the mark was, it's not a curse, it's a blessing. It's a sign of protection. It's a sign of God's grace that he's going to protect Cain, and Cain doesn't need to worry. Right? Cain, not that he doesn't need to worry, he's going to go through something very stressful, but he doesn't need to build a city to protect himself. God is going to protect him, but Cain doesn't trust. And so he builds this city. And it's interesting that the same thing continues to happen with the Tower of Babel. Because what did God say to the to- people um, building the Tower of Babel? When Noah and his family got off the ark, what did God say to the family? 
He said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky and on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you every green plant, just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. What does that sound like? That sounds like Genesis 1, right? It's the same, like, we didn't lose God's grace in the fall. Because the same thing that he said in Genesis 1, he's still saying in Genesis 9. And it's also the same thing that Jesus is saying in Matthew 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good, give good gifts to those who ask him? He's saying, we have a generous Father who gives to people what they need. Right? So the grace never goes away. Now I know what you're thinking, especially if you were raised being taught that you have to clear your plate at dinner because there are starving kids in Africa, right? There's one thing we know for sure, there are starving kids around the world, and so how can we say that God provides what we need? We know there's poverty, we know there's need, we know there are problems around the world. How can I possibly say that? Well, first of all, I'm not saying this because I think it. I'm saying this because it's what I find over and over again throughout the Bible. But second of all, keep in mind that this is not say that God gives to every individual directly what they need. It says that he gives to humanity what they need. And what I'm saying is that humanity has a secure supply in God. So if you ask if there's a secure supply from God, then how could we ever end up with need in the world? Well, let's talk about a little story we all lived through. The great toilet paper shortage of 2020. Anybody remember this? Empty shelves. Full carts. People stockpiling. Now, this is very hard to explain, these empty shelves, because here's the thing. Toilet paper, one of the most secure supply chains in the United States at the time. Turns out, one of the last things we'll lose in apocalypse is our toilet paper. Because it's all made domestically. It's made in the United States. It's made from wood pulp and water, which we have plenty of. We don't have to import. And it's made in rural towns, which were the least affected by COVID. So how did we end up with these empty shelves? Well, there was an increase in demand because people were going into lockdown, so they were spending more time at home, so they needed more home toilet paper. Um, and so the, it, there was an increased demand of 40%, but buying went up 70%. There were days that toilet paper sold 700% more than it had the same day the year before. People were panic buying. And some very quick-thinking psychologists, they managed to grab people as they were stockpiling toilet paper and run psychological tests on them. They didn't ask them why they were buying more toilet paper, but they tested their, their personalities. And what they found was the people who bought more toilet paper were not bigger families. They didn't have an increased need for toilet paper. They were more anxious personalities. They were more afraid. And that fear made them afraid that at some point the toilet paper may go out. So I'm going to get as much as I can now to make sure that my toilet paper supply is secure. This was a huge thing. You remember they, they had to ration toilet paper? Completely secure supply and we had to ration toilet paper. 
And what, I, what the Bible is saying is that this is not just some silly thing that happened in COVID. This is what human beings do. We do this all the time. We stockpile wealth. We stockpile food. We stockpile power. We stockpile weapons. We stockpile violence, like force. We do this all the time to protect ourselves. We grab onto everything we can and we use it to protect ourselves. And yet, the supply of what we actually need is secure. That's what the Bible is saying. That whole scarcity mentality, it's not true. In fact, so what that means is the problem that our communities face is not, it's not scarcity, it's anxiety. We are afraid of scarcity even in spite of God's generosity. God is generous and we, were, we don't trust it. It's our fear not the lack of resources, but our fear of the lack of resources and our, the selfishness that comes out of that fear that causes the problems in the world. And that fear, it creates generational, uh, uh, ch- generational um, transformation in our community such that it, it, it infects and corrupts us. And after Cain builds his city, it takes a few generations for that community to culminate in this guy named Lamech. who tell, he, he writes the first human song in the Bible. And this is how it goes. It's a real, real earworm. Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wise of Lamech, hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. What he's saying there in the middle is he's saying, yeah, if a guy, if a guy like punches me, I'm going to knock him to the ground. If a kid gives me a paper cut, I'm going to kill him. Right? It's this exaggeration. Like you touch me, I will destroy you. I do not take any grief from anyone. This is the epitome of the big stick policy. I will knock you down so you don't get up. But notice what he says at the end. If Cain is avenged seven times, who is going to avenge Cain seven times? It's God. He says, ah, but I'm going to avenge myself 77 times. You see this attitude, this, this, this way that the anxiety becomes pathological so that he's completely obsessed with protecting himself from threats that he actually thinks he can do a better job of it than God would do by a factor of 11. And that is the society about which it ultimately says later on in Genesis, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And he destroyed them with a flood. Notice that the problem is not that there wasn't enough. God kept telling them there is enough. You don't have to do this to each other. But they couldn't trust him. And that lack of trust is what ultimately destroyed them. Because anxiety poisons our communities with fear, hatred, envy, and greed. And here's the thing. We think the problem is scarcity. The problem is actually anxiety. But if we think the problem is scarcity, then we bring all of our power to bear on, on scarcity. Does, if the real problem is anxiety, is that going to be helpful? Now, governments can be helped, and the, the Bible does say that there is a place for them to restrain evil, because there is, they, there is a use for restraining the way people hurt each other, right? Like, just like there was a use for, controlling, um, for the, um, controlling how much toilet paper people could buy. It'd be better if people just on their own just didn't hoard toilet paper. But it was good because people were hoarding toilet paper for someone to step in and say, all right, two rolls, like two bags a day for a customer, right? So there is use for restraining it. But that power, if that power comes from anxiety, it's never going to fix it, is it? 
right? If, the, if it's fear that's the problem, then bringing power to bear on it is never actually going to fix it. Fear and power cannot heal anxiety. They can only contain the symptoms. And this is why it's problematic for Christians to keep turning to power to try and solve the world's problems when we know that the problem is not the supply, the problem is not scarce resources, the problem is humanity and our failure to trust God. We're never ultimately going to change the world in meaningful ways simply by using power in different ways. We know that as Christians. The solution to anxiety, if anxiety is the problem, then the only way to really solve those problems is faith. Actually trusting that there really is enough to go around. Now, here's a challenge for you. Try convincing people of that without believing in God. To try p- convincing people that they can just trust the material world to provide and it'll, everything will be fine. It's not going to happen. And so if there is no God, then sc- that scarcity is the best, is accurate, and that's the best we can do. But the only real basis for the kind of faith that can help us to change our scarcity mindset is Jesus. Because Jesus not only taught, because there are others who teach that God provides, but Jesus proved it. Jesus proved that you can trust God's grace all the way to the cross. Remember how Jesus handled his crucifixion. The guards came to arrest Jesus to use power and force on him, and the disciples were upset, and so what did they do? They tried to use force right back, and Jesus says, Put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do, not th- do you think that I cannot call on my Father, and will it, he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Notice, he's not saying that there's just some, like, random pattern that's just a clue that, like, like you know, like in the Old Testament, it says 30, there were 30 pieces of silver, so Judas has to get 30 pieces of silver in the New Testament. It could have just easily been 15 or 50. It, it, it wasn't the number that was important. It was just the fact that they were the same. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that this has to be fulfilled in the biblical way, in, in according to the way God works in the world. Because later, he, when he talks to Pilate, He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. He's not saying my kingdom's not here. He's saying my kingdom isn't from here. It's not like other kingdoms. And how is it not like other kingdoms? It's not using force and violence to get its way. In fact, he's going to submit to force and violence to prove that it doesn't ultimately win. And Jesus, he goes to the cross Among many other things, the whole world is summarized in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but among all those things, one of the things he does is he proves that you can trust the providence of God, the grace of God to the very end, and God will come through. You can risk everything trusting God, and you may even die in that process, and even death will not defeat God. Paul says about Jesus this way, Jesus being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now, if Jesus had that same scarcity mentality as us, that same like, I've got to win, would he ever have given up his godliness, like his, his place in heaven? 
Would he have made himself, would Cain ever have made himself less for another person? You see that this is Jesus not being competitive, but living in God's grace. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to the, uh, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He obeyed God to the point of letting himself be killed, which you would think would be the ultimate defeat of God's grace, right? Like when you're dead, because what, we, what we're afraid of when we're challenged to live in God's grace is, well, what if he doesn't provide enough money for me to keep my house? What if he doesn't provide enough money for me to finish college? What if he doesn't provide enough food for me to feed my family? And I'm not telling you to take like unwise risks and things like that. What I'm saying though, because that can sometimes happen too. What I'm saying though is that when we know the way God wants us to live and we ask, will God take care of me through that? It may not look the way you wanted it to. We know from the, Jesus' time in the Garden of Gethsemane that he wasn't excited about getting crucified. He would rather have not been crucified if that was an option. It wasn't. But because it was the right way to go, he was willing to trust God to the point of even dying, which should be the ultimate defeat of God's grace. And yet, what happened? God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He raised him to life, to eternal life that can never be taken away again, and he made him king over everything. And so the power that actually rules over this world is infused with God's grace. This world is ruled over. It wasn't just designed with God's grace, but it's been reconquered by God's grace. And so the only way that we can actually fix the problems that really afflict humanity, which is human beings, right? We are our own problem. And it is mainly our failure to trust God and our compulsive need to protect ourselves and to take for ourselves. The only way to fix the problem if the problem is us is Jesus. And if the only solution is Jesus and is trusting in the faith of Jesus, then only a church, a community built on faith in Jesus rather than on power, can actually convince the world to trust God. Because only the church can say, we're here by the grace of God. It is the grace of God that brings this motley crew of people together, right? It is the grace of God that keeps us coming back. It is the grace of God that has kept people coming back to the church for 2,000 years, and not just coming back, but flourishing, right? This tiny little, little Jewish sect, illegal Jewish sect in, from the corners of the Roman Empire, took over the Roman Empire, right? Like when Constantine made Christianity legal, it wasn't, he, wasn't, he did that because the majority of Romans were already Christian. It was a politically good move for him because the church just blew up, and not just in the Roman Empire, but all over the known world. Not through power, but through testifying that if you trust in Jesus, the world can be completely different. It's not so much that God is going to save the world, but God has already saved the world, and we just have to live like it. And the nations of this world, no matter how good they are, cannot invite people into that. They cannot draw people into that. They can serve the function that God has ordained for them, which is to restrain sin. 
restrain disorder, but they cannot actually transform and truly fix what's going on in our societies. And so as Christians, what we need to do is, first of all, not get sucked into that scarcity mentality, because that scarcity mentality is what drives our politics. And when you look around at how scared and desperate people are in every election cycle, are Christians any different? Does it seem like Christians are all that? Of course, obviously remember that the news is going to report the worst of it. But they don't seem to have to try very hard to find that everybody in our culture is afraid at every election and every Supreme Court appointee and every decision that gets handed down and every law that gets passed, and we are just as afraid as everyone else. When the whole point of our testimony is to say that we don't need to be because the battle's already won. The ending is already written. The world is already saved and we just have to live like it. And if people look at us and we're living like the world's not all, like salvation isn't already here, they're not going to believe that it is. This is why loving our neighbors fearlessly can save the world. We'll talk about this in a few weeks, talk about this more specifically, like how it did that in the early church in a few weeks. But loving your neighbor, being a non-anxious presence in your community can change the world. Proving to people by your lifestyle that you believe that God is in control, that can change your neighborhood. And as neighborhoods can be changed, communities can be changed. Communities can be changed, cities can be changed, nations can be changed, continents can be changed. The world has been changed and is continuing to be changed by that. It starts with our living our everyday lives with our neighbors and our friends and in our communities as a non-anxious presence that believes that God really is in control and Jesus really has won the battle. Amen? As we close, I want to tell you about a new thing that we're going to be doing this summer. Rachel mentioned last week that we're taking a break from Sunday school for the summer, and, but I didn't want to just cut something out without having something else for us to engage in. And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be starting dinner groups. Dinner groups are very simple. You're going to get together with some people, and you're going to have dinner. Right? Because that is actually one of the most powerful things that people in the early church did, was they had dinner with people. And not just other Christians. They had dinner with people, and they weren't jerks. They had dinner with people, and they were generous with their food, and they were generous with their homes, and they didn't feel the need to impress everyone that walked in the door. They just loved each other. And we want to get you in the practice of that, and maybe even create openings for you to invite community members and neighbors into that. So what I'll have you do is take your grow card from the seat in front of you, or the seat in back of you if you are in the front row. Who sits in the front row? Man. The Holy Spirit's stronger in the back of the room. Anyway, um, just <laughs> write your name and some contact info and then write dinner group. And then just leave that on your seat. We'll come by and grab them afterward. And what we're going to do is we're going to put you together into groups and we'll have you, and then we're going to have you meet together. You'll schedule it yourselves during the, the summer. We just want you to get together, eat together, and create spaces for community to grow and flourish and for people to be loved and the kingdom to be built. This is kingdom craft. And I promise you that doing this is more powerful than anything I witnessed when I worked in the state legislature in Washington. Because this has the spirit of God in it. As we go into our final song, I want to invite you to consider what God may be putting on your heart this morning. We believe that every time you hear the gospel, you have a chance to respond. One of the ways you can respond is by signing up for one of those groups. But the first thing is if you have not actually, um, if you have not actually joined with God in his grace and have not accepted his offer of generosity, today is the best day to do that. Because 
your life, the Christian life is not easier, but it is better, and it is infused with God's grace, and it certainly lasts longer in the long term, right? It lasts for eternity, and, and it is full of what, of what God has in mind for this world. And so we encourage you, if, if today, if God is putting on your heart to give your life to him, to come forward during the final song, to talk to one of the ministers afterward, Pastor Rachel or I, or if you're online, contact a Christian that you know or trust, contact the church office. Don't let this moment pass. If you're a believer, but you need to get more plugged in with a community that is seeking to transform the world through the power of the kingdom, that's who we are seeking to be. So we'd love for you to join our small groups, join one of those dinner groups. Um, you'll notice there are other options. You don't have to only check one box on there. Uh, oh, there we go. There's multiple boxes. You can check them all. Um, we'd love for you to get more connected with our church body. You'll notice also that there are blue cards that say serve, because another thing that we do to practice kingdom craft is we serve others and we love others. And there are a lot of opportunities to do that through this congregation. So I'd encourage you as we sing our final song to consider the next step that God is calling you to take and to commit to taking that step.